Open your Bibles, if you have them, to the Old Testament book of Ruth. We'll be in Ruth chapter 1. Ruth is found in the Old Testament, the eighth book in the Bible. It's just a brief book, just four chapters long. The first five books in the Bible, as you make your way to the eighth book of Ruth, is often referred to as the Pentateuch or the Law of Moses. It was written by Moses through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And those first five books of the Bible given to the children of Israel as they were entering into the Promised Land gave them a unique blessing of a biblical worldview. Not only gave them a biblical worldview, it gives us a biblical worldview, as all Scripture does, informing us of the basic answers to the questions we have concerning life, the questions of origin, where did we come from, destiny, what happens to us after we die, meaning, what's the purpose of life, morality, how do you differentiate between right and wrong. Those first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, also provided the children of Israel a history of the nation, but also God's redemptive plan for humanity. The origin of it, that God was going to set apart to himself uh, the patriarch Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He promised Abraham land, seed, and and blessing that through the, the seed of Abraham would ultimately come the blessing that would be fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so those first five books of the Bible serve those purposes, and then you have what Books are called the historical books, the history books. You have Joshua as the children of Israel are making their way into the promised land. You have Judges that takes place after the death of Joshua up to the time of the monarchy where Saul becomes the first king of Israel and later David. That covers a 350-year time span. And then after Judges, there you find that brief book of Ruth that takes place during the days of the judges. Ruth is an interesting book because it's one of two books in the Old Testament that's named after a woman. You have Ruth and of course you have Esther. And so this is a a brief book. It's an interesting book, but it's also a, a significant book. The reason it's significant is because Ruth, while she's not mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament, she is mentioned in the New Testament in the context of the genealogy of Jesus. And the reason that is significant is because it reminds us, as we read this book, it reminds us that God is sovereign over history, that God is sovereign over this family line of Boaz and Ruth, who are the great-great-great-grandparents of David, from whose line would come the Messiah, the King of the Jews, who would not just redeem the children of Israel of their sins if they trusted in him, but Jew and Gentile alike. So it's significant because it reminds us that God is sovereign over history, but it also reminds us of the kindness of God and the grace of God. Even when our perception of God is warped because of the difficulties and the circumstances of life, this book reminds us that in times of grief, In times of sorrow and in times even of great suffering, God demonstrates his kindness and his grace to us in those most difficult times. And while we begin the book in a place of grief, we're going to continue and conclude the book in a place of gladness. We begin with the hurt of Naomi and and Ruth, and by the end of the book, you hear about the hope that God 
provides. And so from a place of despair, ultimately in God's kindness, he provides delight. And so as we navigate this book that could possibly be read in one sitting, and you could do that, we're going to take the chapters one at a time. And next week, unfortunately, we won't be together. We'll have to wait a couple more weeks before we enter into that next chapter. But I pray as we conclude each chapter and our time together, that would encourage you to read ahead, but also to wait in the tension between each of those chapters as we watch God in his sovereignty and his kindness minister to those who are in places of sorrow, sadness, and great grief. And so as we walk through our text today, we're going to see how God shows grace to Naomi, the mother-in-law of Ruth, in the midst of her grief, and how God does the same for you and for me. Let's go ahead and read it. We're going to read all 22 verses. Ruth chapter 1 reads this way, and it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And when they went to the country of Moab and remained there, uh, then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth, and they dwelt there about ten years Then both Malon and Kilion also died, so the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from that place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them. They lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, But Ruth clung to her. She said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything (coughs) but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And, And the women said, is this Naomi? But she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full 
the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me? The Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The word of the Lord. As we take time to dig through this first chapter of the book of Ruth, if I could break down uh, the first chapter, I'd break it down with a few headings. It would be um, the grief of Naomi in verses 1 to 5, the grace of God in verses 6 to 18, and then the gloom that ends with in verses 19 to 21. Let's begin by talking about the grief that we read about in regards to Naomi. Um, the first five verses would be described as the prologue of the book. It gives us an introduction to the timing, an introduction to this family of Elimelech and Naomi, her sons and their uh, daughters-in-law. And it also gives us the setting of the grief that we read about. The text begins with a chronological marker. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. What we're told immediately, if you've ever read the book of Judges or the time of the Judges, you know that this is a dark time in Israel's history. The reason it's a dark time is because that time over 350-year time span from after Joshua's death up to the time of the monarchy, it's, it's marked by cycles of disobedience that lead to God's discipline. And God delivers the children of Israel over to foreign rulers who rule over them. The children of Israel cry out to the Lord for mercy and God sends a deliverer or a judge. And this cycle happens again and again in the book of Judges, but every time it happens, there is a decline morally and spiritually. So that by the time you get to the book, the end of the book of Judges and you read about that, if you just look back to the last verse of the previous book of Judges in verse 25, it says there in your Bibles, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Isn't God the king of Israel? God is the one who gave them all of the blessings, including the promised land. But what you read about in the Old Testament history is that they had rejected God as their king. Ultimately, when you get into First and Second Samuel, Kings and Chronicles, you read about a people who, who want to look like the other nations and who want a king like the other nations. And so they reject God as their king. And so there is no king in Israel and chaos is the result. And so this is a time where there is great spiritual darkness. This is a time where there's great moral darkness. And so this is a time of darkness. Also, it's a time of difficulty. It says, it came to pass in the days when the judges rules that there was famine in the land. Perhaps because of the spiritual darkness of the times, is this the discipline of the Lord? Could be, could not be. Nevertheless, this is a difficult time. I don't know about you guys, but I've never lived through an actual famine. I've never feared when I wake up in the morning or go to bed at night if I'm going to have another meal. Sure, you go through hard times in your life and uh, there's places that you can go to get food, churches perhaps that provide food, but I've never lived in a time that where I was so desperate that I did not know, at least for myself, but even more for my children or my children's children, I've never feared whether or not I would have my next meal. This is the case for them. 
In Bethlehem, there is famine. They have no food to eat for themselves to sustain their own lives, let alone their children's lives. And so this is a a difficult time. And in this time of difficulty, we're introduced to a family who makes a decision to leave Bethlehem and go to a place called Moab. It says, a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah. Now, we all know Bethlehem because it's the place where Jesus was born. But at this time, it's an insignificant city, not known for much. Bethlehem in the Hebrew means house of bread. Bet is house, lachem is um, bread, and so you have the house of bread, and that's interesting as well because they have no bread in the house of bread. And when you read this in the Hebrew, you get to see all the play on words and the, and the beauty of how the writer writes this. And uh, it tells us there was no, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of, of Moab. Now, if you read your Old Testament history, you'll learn um, that the origin of Moab came from an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. Uh, in Genesis 19, 30 to 38, you learn that Lot had an incestuous relationship with both of his daughters. One of the children that they had was, was Ammon, the other was Moab, and so that is the origin of where the Moabites come from. In Numbers 22 to 24, you learn that the Moabites resisted Israelite passage as they went into their territory. And in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 to 9, you learn about the Moabitess women who seduced the men of Israel that ultimately led to their punishment as 24,000 of them were killed because of that. And so, when you think of Israelites, Israel's history with the Moabites, you know that there is great tension there, and that may not be a place that you necessarily want to go to and have your sons marry into. In Deuteronomy 23, 3-6, you learn that the inhabitants of Moab were excluded from the land, and in Judges 3.15, you learn that one of the kings of Moab, Eglon, um, is described in the book of Judges, and so they're going to a place uh, that is outside of the land that God had promised his people, there is a famine, and so how do you provide for your people? A certain man goes and takes his family, and he, he, he goes to this place called Moab, he and his wife and his two sons, and we learn in verse 2 that his name is Elimelech. Elimelech uh, means God is my king. Isn't that interesting? In the time when the judges... In the time of the judges, when there was no king of Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, you have a guy by the name of Elimelech whose name means God is my king. The name of his wife is Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. That's significant because later at the end of the chapter, she will say, don't call me Naomi pleasant. Call me Mara bitter. And it says, and the names of the two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to the country of Moab and remain there. They're just trying to provide for their family, make ends meet, but unfortunately, this is a place where tragedy will befall them. And the text continues and said, then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Not with much detail, just a quick introduction, and immediately we see despair, grief, and sorrow because of the death of Naomi's husband. And it says, and she was left with her two sons. You lose your husband in that day and age, your husband in an agrarian society was a source of security. 
He was the provider of the home. In a patriarchal society, you didn't necessarily have women working. And so if you can't have, uh, if you can't work, at least you have your sons who can further your inheritance. And so at least she has her two sons, right? And at least she has two sons who can marry some, some wives and eventually give her children that will further their name. And it says, now they took wives of the women of Moab, and it says the name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other was Ruth, and they dwelt there about 10 years. For 10 years, no children, no ability to further the inheritance. She's lost her husband. At least she has her sons. At least she has the hope that they will have children. And then it says in verse 5, it doesn't give us the details. Then Malon and Kilion also died. So the woman, doesn't even mention her name there, the woman survived her two sons and her husband in the prologue of the book were immediately met with the grief, the sorrow, and the suffering of Naomi. You know, as we take a moment to pause before we talk about the grace of God in the midst of her grief, we're reminded that because we live in a fallen world like Naomi, we experience grief. Suffering is inevitable. But while suffering is inevitable, living in a fallen world, if you've ever gone through tragedy, if you've ever experienced suffering, if you've ever been in a place of despair and experienced the unexpected, how many of you know, even when you know somebody has a terminal illness, when they pass and when that suffering comes, you never can fully, truly prepare for it. And here is this woman who has lost her husband, has lost her two sons, and we get to hear in just the first five verses, just being introduced to their family and the time that they live in, a woman experiencing great grief. If I could ask this question, open it for discussion, if, if you could better prepare for the difficulties and tragedies that you've experienced in your life, if you could give yourself advice, your younger self, advice before you experience those difficulties and those tragedies, what might you share? How might you encourage yourself to prepare? How might you encourage yourself to get in the right mindset? What might you tell your younger self prior to the hardship, the struggles, and the tragedies you faced, if anything? So Jerry's saying maintain a relationship with God in good times, not just in the hard times when you need him the most. And so have a personal relationship with God, depend on him in all seasons, in the ups and the downs, so that when, the, when those hardships come, when those tragedies hit, uh, he's with you. Yeah. 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 Hide the word of God in your heart consistently. Make God's word a priority so that when the time comes that you need it most, it's there and it's available and God's there to encourage you, to guide and direct you and provide you the wisdom you need. Marianne? Yeah. 
So ultimately, when you're looking for peace in the midst of that, God is the only hope that we have. He's the only solution. He's the only one who can give us peace in the midst of the hardest griefs we experience. Yeah. yeah. Anyone else want to share? It's an interesting question. I think an interesting thing to consider. Interesting thing how God uses tragedy, suffering, and hardship in our life to even prepare us for different ways we might minister to someone else or how God might use those to strengthen our faith as we grow in him and lean into him. So because we live in a fallen world, suffering is inevitable. Secondly, because we live in a fallen world in these first five verses, we can identify with Naomi. And because we can identify with Naomi, we're reminded that suffering can, tragedy can be overwhelming, can be more than you can bear, can be where you drives you to your knees and you don't know if you can make it another day. Suffering and tragedy are hard. They're difficult. Um, When you think of the tragedies and hardships that have overwhelmed you, I want to ask this question, but I I just want you to consider some of those things that have overwhelmed you as I'm going to ask this question, but I I think of the, the suffering my mother experienced. So I lost my dad when I was 11, but I still remember, it's still like, like, uh, in my mind, the moment my mother was at work, she came home and she had gotten the call while she was at work. I still remember her walking through the door weeping, screaming because of the loss of my father. Even though he had terminal cancer and it was known that it would happen, you never truly expected, and it was overwhelming for her. When I was in college and then going to seminary, my mother remarried 10 years later And after getting married again, her second husband passed away. And I still remember talking to my mother on the phone and being reminded of the same grief, sorrow, and cries that I recall when I was 11 when she walked through that door and informed us of the sad news. I still remember being at the funeral of my nephew who was born a stillborn at 32 weeks. I think that was one of the most difficult funerals to sit through and the pain of seeing the grief that it's brought my sister and the struggle it brought to her life and her husband and their family over the years is just overwhelming and so if I could ask this in times of difficulty tragedy or suffering were you motivated to lean into God or leave God and and what does it look like to lean into God when you feel like leaving him I know this is really personal but uh the grief that we read about here reminds us of God's grace. So, so what does it look like to lean into God when you feel like leaving him? Yeah, Kevin. There's nowhere else to turn to. God's the only person you can turn to. Even when it's difficult or hard or feels impossible, he's the only option. He's got the word of life. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, just going, committing yourself to just worship even when it's difficult to start and, and the Lord, yeah. Oh, yeah. And the worship, worship in the midst of suffering is so powerful, so significant. Whether you go through it or just watching different people worship, knowing the pain and suffering they're going through is oh, such a humbling thing and a reminder of God's grace, yeah. Anyone else want to share? Leaning into God in those times when grief is overwhelming, pushes you to your limits. Yeah. So the first five verses, we find the prologue. We're introduced to the grief of Naomi. As we enter into verses 6 to 18, we're reminded of the grace of God. And while the Lord had just mentioned in verse 6, what we find ourselves now is on the road from Moab back to Bethlehem. The text begins and tells us this. It says in verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Naomi has lost everything, her husband, at least in her mind, everything. She's in a foreign land. She doesn't have her people around her. Uh, she's, um, she's among people who worship foreign gods. She doesn't have her husband. She doesn't have her sons. All she has are her daughters-in-law. Her sense of security is not there. How do you provide for your daily needs if you don't have someone who's able to provide for you, especially in the context of the society that they live in? And here there is some sense of hope. This is the first good news that we hear about. The first five verses is just gloom and despair. And now we learn that the Lord has provided bread for the people in Bethlehem. There was a famine, but she's heard that the famine is no more. God has provided the rain and God has provided the food. And the text tells us she arose with her daughters-in-law. She takes with her. She tells um, Orpah, she tells Ruth, let's go back. And it says that she might return from the country of Moab. You know, that term return is significant. Uh, Naomi, along with Elimelech and her sons, they had left their homeland. They had left the people of God where they had lived and where the people of God worshipped God and they had left to Moab and now she's about to return. This is a helpful reminder of a principle that Going back sometimes be, means moving forward. And I think sometimes you need to be reminded of that. Going back to God in his word when you have not been there for a while means moving forward. Going back to God in prayer, even though your prayer life has suffered a bit, means moving forward. So going back to God and returning to him and being among the people of God where God provides you individuals to help bear your burdens and celebrate your blessings. Going back sometimes means moving forward. And Ruth, according to God's will, because God is working even in the midst of her grief, goes back, returns to Bethlehem, returns to the blessing of God where the favor of God reigns. And it says, she returned from the country of Moab for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and giving them bread. Now, in a prayer, Naomi's going to mention the Lord again, but two times in the book of Ruth, we hear the Lord's intervention. 
The Lord is mentioned elsewhere, but two times, this time, and then in, in uh, uh, the end of the book, we learn that God not only provides bread, he also provides life. And Boaz and Ruth, I don't know if I'm giving the story away to anybody, are going to give birth to a child, and ultimately that's going to be the line through whom David is born, and then ultimately the Messiah, who is Christ the Lord. And so it says, the Lord has visited people by giving them bread. Therefore, she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So this is all taking uh, place on the road. And it says, go, re-, and, and then it says in verse eight, and Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go, Return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Now, Some of you might be wondering, why would Naomi tell this to Orpah and Ruth? She has no one but them. They have her. Well, she's looking out for the best of them. These two women are, 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 are still individuals who can find a husband who can find that sense of security, who can go back to the land where their family is, that land that they know, the land where they're familiar with the gods of the land. And so Naomi is trying to give them some good advice. Listen, folks, go back. Go back to the land and go find some husbands and go have some children. Go ahead and find security and find someone who's going to continue your line and provide that inheritance too. And so she tells them, go, go find rest. Go find security, each in the house of her husband. And it says, she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. Listen, these women have been through a lot together. Naomi's lost her husband. They knew perhaps, um, uh, well, after Elimelech dies, you have them finding their wives. But you, you hear, you see here, they, they've been through a lot. She's lost her sons. They have lost their husbands. This is a hard and difficult time. They've, they've walked through with each other in the midst of their grief. And now Naomi is saying, leave, go back. And we're about to separate. And there are great tears and great wails that are said. Verse 10 says, and they said to her, surely we will return with you to your people. Now, one of them says it out of politeness. The other one says it out of commitment. She really means it. Uh, they say, we, we, we'll return with you. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. And Naomi, what she does here is she gives uh, her daughters-in-law uh, a number of really good reasons why they should go back. They are really good reasons. Don't follow me. And here's the reasons. I don't have any more sons left in my womb. I can't give you any more sons. Now, what she's referring to there is possibly a custom that God had provided for the nation of Israel that if someone had lost their husband, that God would provide someone to further their inheritance. And so a brother might be able to marry the widow and they could have children and further that line. Let me read that to you. Deuteronomy 25 verse 5 says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform a duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And so you can read, continue on there. And so she's saying, listen, I've got no sons left to give you. I can't make that provision for you. 
And so she says this, are are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Verse 12, turn back my daughters, go for I am too old that if to have a husband, I can't even, I'm not going to even get married again. If I should say that, say I have hope, if I should say I have husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? If I could actually have sons, would you wait around for me? This is a good reason to go back to the land that you came from. No, my daughters, for it griefs me very much for your sake. She really cares for them. She loves them enough to say, hey, you guys need to go back. Find security in a husband. Further your line, have some children. And then she says this, no, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Because her grief is overwhelming, she finds that God is more of an adversary than an ally. Now, I know it's not popular to say, but have you ever been in a place where you've been so grieved, so overwhelmed by the circumstances of life, the difficulties and the sufferings that you have lamented and wondered, God, you feel more like my adversary than my ally? You see that throughout the Psalms where the psalmists cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, how how long will you not hear my prayers? How long uh, will will you you be like that? And in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, A messianic psalm that ultimately Christ fulfills, but at the end of the psalm, it affirms, all those psalms affirms the sovereignty of God, but those lament psalms are a reminder that, that God knows what's in your heart. You can't fool him. And when you feel the pain of suffering and hardship and difficulty, you can tell the Lord, this is how I feel. Lord, I feel like you're an adversary, not an ally, but you don't end there. You get to a place, as the psalmists do, and are reminded of God's sovereignty as we read throughout the book of Ruth and God's kindness. That God is a God, even when you don't feel like it, who will turn your hurt into hope and will turn your despair into delight. And there are times when your view of God can be warped by the reality and the difficulties of your circumstances, but your hope is not in how you feel. Your hope is in who God is and the faithfulness of God in the past. And what she basically says is God is more of an adversary than an ally to me. If you go with me, you are putting yourself in a difficult place because my God is an adversary to me, perhaps is punishing me. And if you're with me, you're going to experience the same hardship, tragedy, and difficulty as well. Go back. Pretty convincing, I think. As we continue to read, it says in verse 14, then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. This is Orpah's kiss to her mother-in-law goodbye. Her argument has been convincing. Some people will say you you can't be too critical of Orpah here. But while some might suggest that you shouldn't be very critical of Orpah, Orpah is never mentioned again in the scriptures, but Ruth is. She's mentioned in the context of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And it's a significant thing that Ruth, who is the only non-Jew And this book bears her name. And God is going to bless her seed along with Boaz as she is going to be the great-grandmother of David. Orpah goes back, but Ruth clung to her. 
Verse 15, Naomi is set on convincing her daughter-in-law, you follow her. And she says, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods return after your sister-in-law. Naomi means it. She's not joking around. You need to go back. This is for your own good. She is grieved. She is overwhelmed by her grief. And then this is what Ruth says. And, and the first sign of God's grace to Naomi was the fact that there is bread now in Bethlehem. This is another source of grace and kindness shown to Naomi through Ruth, who is going to bless her in this, later. She may not experience it now or, or know it. And Ruth said this, and, and I want you to hear the heart of Ruth, as she says, entreat me not to leave you. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from following after you. I want you to know this is an expression of a commitment, a real commitment. Some people will read this on their wedding day. Some people will express that commitment saying, and treat me not or turn my back from wherever you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your home will be my home. Listen, Ruth just said, I'm giving up my home. The home where my family is, where my cousins are where my grandparents, the people that I know, I'm giving up my home and I'm going to lodge where you lodge and I'm going to make a home where you make a home. And then she says, your people shall be my people. She gives up her home and she gives up her people and then she gives up her gods. And she says, your God will, and your God, my God. Listen, that's pretty serious stuff. You don't just mess around saying that kind of stuff. She goes on to say, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. In other words, even if you wanted to get rid of me, you're not going to. I'm sticking around. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Your home will be my home. And if I don't keep this promise, may your God do to me whatever he wishes. It says, the Lord do to me and more also if anything but death parts me and you. And so what she says is, listen, I am committed to being with you and nothing is going to separate me from you. Can you imagine somebody coming up to you and expressing that commitment? Giving everything up and saying, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to stick with you. I'm giving up my people. I'm giving up my gods. I'm giving up my home. I'm going to be with you. And nothing is going to separate me from you. It's like someone telling you, I love you. And then in verse 18, you read the response. Naomi ignores her. What an awkward journey from Moab into Bethlehem. This woman, Ruth, has just poured out her heart to Naomi, has said, I'm committed to following wherever you go. Folks, this is an expression of selfless love. How difficult or how hard it is it is sometimes to express a commitment and, and love to somebody who's not appreciative of it, or at least who doesn't seem to be very appreciative and here in this moment of vulnerability and an expression of her commitment of her sacrificial love she says I'm giving everything up to be with you and Naomi ignores her in verses 6 to 18 after we talk about the grief of Naomi we learn about the grace of God 
But how many of you know as we read this section and as we are going to conclude in 19 to 21, there are times when when our circumstances and the hardship and the burdens of life sometimes warp our perception of who God is. This response from Naomi to Ruth seems a bit callous, seems hard-hearted. I mean, Ruth has lost a husband as well. Can she at least acknowledge her expression of commitment? And yet she seems so cold as she ignores her as they make their journey from one place to another. In a a fallen world, suffering is inevitable, but we're reminded that God's grace is available even when you can't perceive it, even when you can't see it. God's grace is available and the manner in which we are reminded of God's grace is to be reminded of his character that God is sovereign and in his sovereignty he's working through the difficulties of our circumstances even when we can't see the purpose behind it knowing that he's working all things for our good and for his glory. Ultimately, Ruth doesn't fully realize the significance of everything that's going to unfold. Not even Naomi. At the end of the book, there is hope. There is delight. There is gladness. But they don't even fully realize that from this seed of Boaz will come David, the next king of Israel. And from that line will come Jesus Christ the Lord. And Ruth will be mentioned among the line from which the Messiah comes. How significant is that? And yet as we have the full story, we can read about it and we can consider it. And so just a couple takeaways. First, even when it doesn't feel like it, God is still working. God was working in the midst of the famine. God was working in providing Ruth's expression of sacrificial love and kindness Even when it doesn't feel like it, God is still working. And secondly, even when it doesn't feel like it, God still cares. Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. You may feel like he's your adversary, but be reminded if you know him and you've trusted in him, he is your ally. He will will express his kindness to you. Can I ask a few questions here (laughs) as we reflect on these truths? The first one is, how might suffering cause a faulty perception of God in times of hardship and difficulty? And how might you minister to someone who feels like God is punishing them as their adversary? How do you minister to someone like that? And how has, maybe you want to share your warped perception of God in those times of difficulty or hardship? Like God... Feel, feels like everyone's against me. Doesn't feel like you're blessing me. I feel more burdened. I'm doing everything right, trusting you. I, I, I'm in the word, I'm in prayer, and yet one bad thing after another. Does anyone want to share about that experience or on the other side of it? How do you minister to someone in those difficult times? Yeah, Trace. Yeah. 
Yeah, so the book of Job adds perspective to our suffering in times of tragedy. It's just a great blessing to know that God doesn't hide the hardships or the difficulties or the tragedies that the people have got to face throughout Scripture, and it's an encouragement to us. It's a reminder to us that of God's faithfulness and God's goodness and God's kindness, even when we don't understand it all. Yeah. 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 And suffering ultimately comes from living in a fallen world. And whether that suffering is from ourselves or from someone else, uh, it has its origin. And what's well, a reminder, as, as both of you are sharing with Job, his, his friends were really good friends until they opened their mouth. And if they could have just sat with him, could have just given him in their presence and said, I'm with you and I'll sit with you through it, it would have been a great blessing to him in the midst of his suffering. Yeah. Anyone else want to share? Yeah. Along with that, we had a lady in our church in this church years and years ago, Jane Gold, that was not a common But she was fabulous, and uh, she used to, she was old way back, and she used to say, um, one was great and one was And um, I think that that is something that we should remember. Yeah. Yeah, so good. And that's like Ruth for Naomi. And she doesn't see it in this moment, but she's there. And that's hard. I think that, that, that tells you a lot, though, in the midst of... Sometimes you, you want to be there, and maybe you're just being there as an encouragement, but the other person doesn't show the appreciation right away, and that can be hard, too. That can be difficult. Yeah. Well, that leads me into my next question. How do you deal with people who are, who are sometimes difficult to love? Like Naomi, and we know why she's going through it, and and why she responds the way that she's responding, um, and what makes it hard to reach out to people who are sometimes seem unappreciative. 
Just want, wanting to say the right stuff and sometimes you don't. Just knowing how to minister, yeah. Yeah. So you can't play God in people's lives. You can't be the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we want to help them and be the solution, but there's a part that we play and God plays another part. Yeah. 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 What well, was Naomi right or wrong or is it just in the middle in regard neutral in regards to her ignoring Ruth? Was that an appropriate answer? Cuz I'd like to say this in in terms of those kinds of things, you know the explanation, you know why she responded the way she did. She's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. She wants what's best for Ruth and Orpah. And she says, you go back. This is good for you. And so Ruth says, no, I'm, I'm sticking with you. And so she's like, I'm just going to ignore you. Just because it's an explanation is it an excuse. Or can it be an excuse to say, because of the hardship I've gone through and the suffering I've endured, I can sometimes be unkind? How do you deal with that tension? Awkward. I think awkward, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, she'll talk to her again later. So. <laughs> but it sounds like cold shoulder. I'm not talking to you all the way. Yeah, yeah, Jerry. Oh, so she just stopped. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Jennifer, were you going to say something? You might be able to perceive it, though, as negative. And sometimes people do, like, hey, what's, what's up with your response in the time of suffering? What's that? Oh, 
possibly, possibly. <laughs> Say that again, I missed it. Yeah, Dennis. So sometimes we build walls, and I think this is all relevant to the conversation simply because we're reminded of God's sovereignty, we're reminded of God's kindness, and God shows his kindness to his people through his people. Uh, now, Ruth, she's a Moabite. She's com committing herself to follow God and that sort of thing here. Uh, but God uses us to minister into the lives of people, and so the relevance here is not just God's sovereignty over history, but also showing kindness through the sacrificial love of people like Ruth, and the question for us is, okay, how does, does God want to show his kindness through us, even in ministering to those in times of tragedy? And I think we've mentioned a couple of those things, like simply be there for somebody, um, ask to pray with them. Anything further? I mean, just as you say in a moment like this, how do you minister to someone like Naomi? Um, any, other, any other takeaways here? Just as you minister to others who have faced tragedy as well. Just be available and meet a need where, 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 it's, where it's needed. Yeah, yeah. Someone bring over a meal sometimes. Um, help out. It goes a long way. Anything else as we move forward? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so she didn't point them to God. He's the one. He's the solution. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, Jerry? Oh, yeah. Grounded. 
Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, so she hasn't been with the people of God. She hasn't been encouraged in that, uh, with that same encouragement we need. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But she was drawn by the bread. And, and it says the, the Lord provided the bread, so Lord willing, she knew it was the Lord. Um, and so we, we talked about the, the grief of Naomi, the grace of God, even when Naomi didn't necessarily see it. And then we conclude in verses 19 to 21 with the gloom of Naomi. The gloom of Naomi. Verse 19, um, it says, Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. Listen, Naomi hasn't been back for 10 years. Uh, Elimelech's not with her. She doesn't have her children with her. She has a Moabite daughter-in-law. She hasn't been there. She, she's left the land for, for 10 years. And so uh, the people that she once knew, 10 years, a lot of changes, right? Not just uh, as you grow older, but also in terms of experiences that you've had. And, and sometimes you, you, you meet up with folks, you know, and uh, personality-wise, they seem a little bit different. The hardships and the difficulties of life have hit them, and they don't always seem to be the same person they once were. And, and the text says, and it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them, and the women said, is this Naomi? Is that Naomi? Is, is that her? Is that Naomi? We haven't seen her for 10 years. And, and, but, but she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. God has dealt bitterly with her, she says. I, I went out full and the Lord has brought me again home empty. Hurt, not a lot of hope. Gloom, not a lot of gladness. Despair, not a lot of delight. But aren't you thankful that when you're gloomy, when you're in a place of despair, when you can't see God in the midst of how he's working and you feel as if God is against you and everyone's against you and God is more of an adversary than an than an ally, that even in those times when you don't see how God is working and you feel like leaving God instead of leaning into him, God's still working and God is still faithful and God will not leave us nor forsake us, but he will stay faithful to us. A key term that you'll see in uh, this book is mentioned already with the term kindly, deal kindly with you. The Lord deal kindly with you. That word kindly is the word hesed. It's the word loyal love. It speaks of God's kindness and God's loyal love to his people. Whenever God is mentioned, whenever you see the, the word Lord in uppercase in capitals, you, you, you see that being referred to there is the covenant-keeping God of Israel who provides bread and who provides new birth and new life. And what you're reminded in the midst of all that is happening, even as she says, call me Mara, God's at work. And that should be an encouragement because there are times when we don't see it, but we can affirm that God is sovereign, God is good, God is kind, and he's working out his purposes according to his will for his glory, for my good. And it may be generations from now, but God is accomplishing his will nonetheless. 
goes on to say, I went out full, the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has testified against me, the Almighty has afflicted me. Verse 22, so Naomi returned. Can you imagine how Ruth feels? Ruth is a Moabite. She's not a Jew. And you know about Israel's history with, with, with Moab. You know the perhaps the, the tension that's been between them, and now you've got this foreigner with Naomi, and it says she returns to the country of Moab. And then it says this, now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, we're going to stop there, but my prayer is that you can just sit in this tension of the gloom and the despair and the heartache, because I think what we like to do is We don't like to feel the discomfort that tragedy, hardship, and difficulty, suffering brings. But it's a good place sometimes to sit in the suffering, to experience the tragedy, and be reminded of our need for God, and be reminded that He is our only hope. He is our only solution. And in times when I'm pressed beyond my limit and overwhelmed by the circumstances and the difficulties of life because we live in a fallen world, I can be reminded that those are times when I see God is clearest in regards to his sovereignty and in regards to his kindness. And so the invitation as you step away from chapter one is to be reminded that suffering is an inevitable part of life, living in a fallen world. And like Naomi And like Ruth, we suffer. But we're reminded we don't suffer in isolation. We have a God who loves us, who cares for us, who demonstrates his loyal love to us, his hesed, his kindness, his care for us. And what we're called to do is to cast our cares on him because he cares for us. Can we take some time to pray? Father, uh, we thank you for the book of Ruth. Short, brief, but significant. We thank you for the powerful message and the reminder that you, God, are sovereign. Over everything that happens in our lives, you're sovereign over the, the events that are going on in the world. And knowing that you're in control, we can trust you because you're working all things out according to your purposes. And Lord, it's just a wonderful thing to know, even though you're disgust is intervening twice in the book of Ruth, not even mentioned in the book of Esther. We can be reminded that you're working behind the scenes in the smallest details of our lives as you did in the Old Testament times, and you're working out all of the details to accomplish your purposes, and for that, we are grateful. I pray, Lord, that you would create in our heart a desire to, uh, and an ability to trust you in times when it's difficult and hard. Father, you know the, the, the difficulties, the tragedies that have been faced by your people. And we pray, Lord, that we can see suffering, tragedy, and hardship in, from the perspective of Scripture and from the lens of being reminded that you're in control and we can trust you. And so, Lord, we pray, Father, that the words of, of the, uh, the, your word would indeed be a light into our feet and a lamp into our path as we head out. And we give you thanks for it. And we, give, we ask it all in Jesus' name.